Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The jazz session is also available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. Today's guest is bassist John Goldsby from his new album Space for the Bass. This is Moose the Mooch. My guest is bassist John Goldsby. He's got a new record out called Space for the Bass, and it's my pleasure to welcome John to the show. John, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. You've had uh, just such a fascinating life, which I want to talk about a little bit later. Uh, You've certainly spent the last about 15 years, by my count, of that playing in Europe. And as we kind of a prelude to talking about the new record, I'm I'm interested in why you decided to relocate to Europe and, and what's made you stay there for more than a decade and a half now. The reason I moved to Europe was actually to take the job with the WDR Big Band, which is the Westdeutscher Rundfunk. It's the radio and TV station based in Cologne, Germany. I I became aware of the job when I was traveling with Louis Belson. Louis was uh, on the road in Europe, and I was playing with his big band. And the manager from the WDR saw us play at the Maastricht Holland Jazz Festival, and he invited us to both come over as guests, uh, and play with the WDR Big Band, which is uh, a full-time band based at the radio and TV station in Cologne. So when we did that, I was a guest with the Big Band, and I, I realized that their steady bass player had just retired. And it, you know, just checking out the scene at that time, I think that was about 1992, yeah, I, I told all the guys, oh, yeah, this, this looks like a great gig. I'd be interested. And they... Uh, well, it took their time actually calling me back to audition and come back and play a few projects with them. And finally, in 1994, they offered me the job. So that's when I made the decision to leave New York City and then move to Cologne. 
Well, I mean, it's certainly from a, you know, having a stable life and a family and that kind of a thing, it has one of the rare, seems like one of the rare jazz gigs in the world where you have, you know, kind of a a publicly sponsored band where you've had a a 15-year run. It's pretty incredible. I wonder from a... Uh, from the other part of your career, not being in New York, um, you know, being being based in Cologne, Germany, uh, has that has that piece worked out too? Have you been satisfied with the way it's all played out? Uh, yeah, I'm very satisfied with um, yeah most aspects of the the situation. I mean, New York is a, a special place, and I, I always miss it just for the energy and the connection to other musicians. Um, I run into a lot of musicians from New York over here in Germany. For for example, I just did a little tour with Rich Perry last week, the tenor player from New York, and we played a few concerts over here. But the the thing that's missing about New York is just the being able to go out in the evening and see two or three bands or more that are just really killing, that are hitting and have that New York energy. I live in the countryside in Germany, so... I play with a lot of good musicians on, on projects, and I see a lot of good concerts, but it's not that uh, immediate ener- energy that you always have in New York. So I, I, I miss the energy of New York. I don't really miss the uh, the scuffle that most musicians go through there every day. So uh, I do want to talk a little bit uh, more about the past, but let's stick in the present for now and talk about the new record, Space for the Bass. Um, it's fascinating because it places the bass in a variety of contexts throughout the record, uh, duo, trio, quartet, and then even within that, there are shifting combinations of players. How does your role change in those different contexts, if it does? I don't know that my role changes so much, but I naturally, because it's my record, I just picked scenarios where I felt like the bass was an integral part of the whole musical presentation. So some of the tracks are duo, some of them are trio with no drums, uh, and then there's some quartet tracks with drums. Yeah, to me, the it's not a bass record where every tune starts with a bass feature and ends with a bass solo. It's just a, a record where the bass is a, plays the, yeah, the fundamental role through the whole record which uh, I'm, I'm a sideman on a lot of records, so that's not always the case. I, I feel like sometimes, well, the bass is there to uh, make sure that the whole record is propped up and there's a, there's a foundation to it, but the, the bass isn't really the uh, important part of the record. And I think, yeah, with Space for the Bass, I just tried to uh, pick music and musicians where, where I could present every track as a kind of a special bass feature, even though the bass wasn't featured on every track, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, and I'd like to talk more about that. Uh, Many musicians that I've interviewed over the years who were not bass players will cite the bassist as the thing that holds the record together, and the person that they chose first, or, you know, is kind of the glue that keeps the whole project together. And so I'm interested in the difference between... uh, What is the difference between those kinds of records? The records where you feel like the bass... Uh, is is just there to kind of prop the band up versus what you've done on on space for the bass? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I think a lot of my heroes are not the bass players who play fancy solos, but they're the bass players uh, who play with the ensemble very well. And I'm just off the top of my head, I think it's Sam Jones or uh, Walter Booker or Bob Cranshaw or bass players like that. Uh, they're not the bass players who first come to mind when people say, oh yeah, great bass soloist, but they're bass players who play a, a really specific
specific role in the ensemble. They're very important to the ensemble. So those are the bass players that are sort of my heroes. Um, In addition to those players, I naturally love bass solos. I love Paul Chambers and Oscar Pettiford and Ray Brown and Dave Holland and uh, all kinds of different styles of bass solos. So I wanted to get some of that into my record as well. But I wanted my record basically just to feel good. It's kind of a delicate balance for a bass player to make a record where he's playing like a bass player uh, and supporting the ensemble, but it still sounds like his record, or my record in this case. So that's, that's, that was my goal with Space for the Bass, was to just play a nice record of jazz music, but have the bass be a yeah, featured, focused uh, point of, of departure. Somebody I spoke to recently, and I can't remember who it was, said that they liked a bass player to be a bass player and to really to have the foundation of the sound, and that they felt like there were too many bass players nowadays who didn't actually play very much in the bottom end of the bass. I wonder what your opinion of that is or what your thoughts about the role, the, diff- the varying roles of the bass can be uh, in an ensemble setting. I, I think that's absolutely correct, that a lot of records are uh, sort of influenced by bass players who maybe aren't thinking with the ensemble sound in mind. They're, they're maybe looking ahead to what they're going to play on their solo or whatever. And the, the technique and the ability to solo has increased in the last 20 or 30 years among bass players. So there are a lot of players out there who can play a lot of notes and very fancy solos. But yeah, a, a slick noty bass solo doesn't mean that the music's going to be much better. So that that's an important thing for me to play the bass in such a way that the music still feels good and everybody still feels comfortable. That, uh, yeah, the music comes first and whatever bass solo might happen is just a little uh, interlude in the music. It's not necessarily the, you know, the goal of the bass player is to mark time until he gets to the solo section and then play everything he knows. Uh, so, yeah, I, I sort of agree that some records are uh, 
compromised uh, by bass players who maybe don't think of the ensemble sound first and foremost. Of course, your your record can only be as successful as the people that you choose to play on it with you, and you've chosen some real first-rate players. Will you talk about the folks who appear on this record with you? Two of them also play with me in the WDR big band. Carolina Strassmeyer is an alto player, and she lived in New York for, I think, seven or eight years before she took the job with the WDR big band. Uh, she's a young player, uh, really full of fire, and, and has a really great sound. Uh, the other alto player on the record is an even younger player. He's uh, He was 19 years old when he recorded my session, Francesco Cafizo, and he lives in Sicily. Uh, and he's, I mean, you could call him a prodigy maybe, but he's really come up fast, and I first heard about him, I think, when he was 13 or 14. I heard about him from Jamie Abersold, who had some contact with him because he was sort of a, precocious alto player, you know, out in the sticks in Sicily, who was playing bebop like Charlie Parker or Phil Woods. He was over here with the WDR for a project, and I just had this feeling, well, I have to record with Francesco. I have to get him on some tracks and just let him do his thing. And he's really uh, ingrained in the Charlie Parker style, but at 19 years old, or now he's 20, I, I feel that he's trying to break out of that mold. So I, I feel like on this record I sort of captured him at a key moment where he's still playing in that tradition that he grew up with, but he's searching for some new sounds. Yeah, I, I first saw him, I think, when he was 13 or 14 at an, at an IAJE uh, conference in New York City he came to and played. And, you know, was really impressed, although you know, I'm always a little leery of, you know, children, basically, who are... Right. Are playing this music, um, but now I, th- especially uh, on your record, I hope this doesn't. I hope this isn't a bad analogy. But he really sounds to me like if Jan Garbarek played in the 1950s, like that's the moment he's at. He has this incredibly like just biting, cuts through everything kind of sound and a, a smart harmonic conception. And he, you know, he moves pretty quickly through a lot of the tunes that he plays. But I was really impressed. Uh, and I I can hear him. I don't know if we're hearing the same thing, but I can also hear him reaching, you know, for something kind of beyond where he started, which sounds pretty exciting. Right. Yeah, he's, he's sort of, uh, he's got the bebop language covered, but he's also got this uh, uh, bravado and passion that I don't hear a lot from younger players or even older players. I uh, just really sounds like he's singing and reaching for something, you know, he's going for the big picture, so that's that's what I love about Francesco. The other two guys on the record, Hans Decker is the drummer in the WDR big band, and yeah, we play together with the big band maybe 180 days out of the year, and then we play a lot of other little jazz gigs here and there, so I, I really feel a tight connection with Hans, and he's also one of those rhythm section players who doesn't just play for himself. He's not just waiting to play some slick drum thing. He's just trying to make the music happen. So that's, I feel, a real kindred spirit with Hans. The piano player Martin Sasse is a, sort of a, a local hero around Cologne here. He brings over a lot of uh, American jazz artists. And, yeah, he's a real bebop-oriented player who just does gigs around town here. So... Uh, I felt like he was the right guy for this project. 
John, you kind of just touched on this, but I'm interested in what you look for in a drummer. It's kind of you know cliched to say that that you know if you're a bass player, the drummer is the the next most important thing in the band. But I, but I am interested in hearing what makes a drummer and bassist relationship work for you. I feel like with Hans, we share that common goal of wanting to make the music happen, whatever it is. Uh, sometimes we're playing more modern music, you know, European or free music, and sometimes we're playing more R&B or funk. Uh, I feel like the bass player and drummer have to set up the rest of the band or set up the soloists to let them play the best they can play. Uh, I feel like a lot of drummers and a lot of bass players now kind of play through the music or play over the music in such a way that they don't let the the music just organically blossom and and grow. So, yeah, that's what I like about Hans. And most drummers who I really like to play with have that same attitude. They're not uh, coming out of a a practice room mentality. They're coming out of more a musical mentality. They're they're musicians who happen to play the drums, I'd say. talk about the uh, the repertoire choices you made for this record, which is a combination of uh, your compositions and compositions by others. And I'd like to start with uh, some of the tunes that were written by other people uh, with such a vast wealth of music to choose from. How did you pick some of the particular selections uh, that you did? I have a strong connection to Ellington, so uh, Angelica is one of the, the classic tunes that, that he did with Coltrane that was has been not played that much since they recorded it uh, and I, I felt like that was sort of an open tune that we could just relax and unpretentious tune that we could play I also with Francesco I, I wanted to play Moose the Mooch because I knew that you know he could play that inside and out and, and I just wanted to see what would happen with that and I liked to play the melody on the bass the uh, Cedar Walton tune clockwise I, I feel like Cedar is one of those uh, definitive jazz composers, and when I lived in New York, I used to see him, yeah, quite often. You know, once a week, or you know, sometimes a few times a week when he was playing in town. 
I feel like his tunes are, are standards to me, so uh, I wanted to have one of his tunes on the record. And uh, Pumpkin's Delight is just a, a minor blues that I've always played with bands whenever I, not whenever, but quite often when I've, I've done a quartet gig, I'll, I'll play Pumpkin's D- Delight because it's got this nice little uh, funky, fast groove up front, and yeah, it just, just seems like a nice minor blues to blow on. Uh, my original tunes uh, just were compiled over the last year or so, and a couple of them I wrote specifically for this date, uh, just thinking about what would balance out the other tunes I had picked. So the tune uh, Blue Dahlia and the tune 18 Years I wrote, I think, a week or 10 days before the date, just to, because I wanted to have those type of ballads on the record. I didn't want it just to be a kind of a medium tempo bebopish uh, blowing session I'm uh, I'm interested in your approach to composition. There there seems to be a a, a a split to some degree between the kind of inspirational and craft approach uh, to writing. The you know it it came to me fully formed and I just wrote it down. And the I sit at the you know the blank sheet of notepaper for some number of hours a day until something happens. Uh, do you find yourself in one camp or another? Do you find yourself mixing from both styles of composition? How do you approach uh, writing music? Uh, I I think I mix from both. The- styles because I I think I if I needed to I could just go down and sit at the piano and write a tune out based on probably what I'm gathering from other composers or just uh, maybe a more technical theoretical approach where I you know have a basic set of chord changes or a, a, an approach and then I write the melody on top of that the other approach is just when I take the bass or sit down at the piano and play something and then try and make something out of this little uh, kernel of an idea that I let let happen at that moment. So I guess that's the, the more pure way of composing as opposed to the more technical way. But I, I feel comfortable doing e- either way. I, I, I've played a lot of free music, so I 
sometimes I'll just pick up the bass and, and play anything and just see what happens. And other times I'll pick up the bass and say, okay, I'm going to write or I'm going to play an alternate melody on top of all the things you are or whatever you know, typical standard I might pick. You've been on so many recordings over the years, uh, obviously with the WDR band, but with so many others. Um, but I want to make sure people know kind of how you got uh, to where you are. And I was hoping we could start uh, and just cover this a little bit, talking about uh, when you were about 20, uh, you got a gig in your hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. That sounds like it really set the stage for what would follow in your life. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, that gig and uh, what happened because of it? Yeah, when I was uh, coming up in Louisville, well, I, I first started on, on electric bass, and then, yeah, I think I was 19 or maybe maybe 20, but I think I was 19 when it happened. It, it's, uh, I was playing with a piano player, a local piano player in Louisville named Dave Linhard, who also later moved to New York. And um, we, we'd gotten really heavily into jazz, probably because of uh, Jamie Abersold, who lived close by, and Jimmy Rainey, the jazz guitar player who happened to live in Louisville at the time. We were playing jazz sessions every day, and we happened to have a hotel gig at night. We were approached by a club owner who wanted to open a jazz club, and, and uh, so he basically just uh, gave us a, a gig uh, six nights a week playing at a, a local jazz club in Louisville where he was going to bring in name jazz players. And when I think back on that now, I think, oh, that's an incredible gig. I, I can't imagine being 19, and I couldn't really play. I could play a little bit, sort of knew what I was supposed to do, but I couldn't really play the bass, and I didn't really know the, the literature. But, uh, yeah, he for about nine months or so he brought in players like Buddy Tate and uh, Barney Kessel, Jay McShann, uh, Johnny Hartman, Buddy DeFranco, uh, and he would bring them in for, for a whole week and we would just play with them and uh, learn their music and do our best. And of course for them it was just a gig. They were coming through town and playing a week at a club. And for us it was uh, an incredible learning experience. So I did that for nine months, and, and then eventually the jazz club folded like a, a lot of those clubs did. <laughs> and uh, after that folded, I went back and I was working in a lounge band at a, a Holiday Inn, and I was thinking, well, that what was all that? I, I've got to get out of this town. i got to move to New York. You know, that was the next step. So that was uh, 1980 when I left Louisville and moved to New York. I, it was either stay in Louisville the rest of my life and probably play at the Holiday Inn or play in lounge bands or just make a break and get out of there and move to New York like uh, so many other players have done over the years. Was it possible to hold down that, that Louisville gig and play behind all those great names you just mentioned in part because you you didn't realize the significance of it? I mean, was it, could you have actually comprehended at 19 years old who a lot of these guys were and what they had gone through to get where they were? I, I think at 19, I thought everybody was much better than I was, and they were, but, um, you know, I was playing sessions with, with Jamie Abersold during the day quite often, or, or with Dave Linhart, uh, who was my, about my age, my contemporary, and uh, Jimmy Rainey lived in town, and he, as you know, is one of the yeah, definitive bebop jazz guitar players, and to me, everybody just seemed to know something more about the music than I, I did. And so, you know, every day, all day, I was 
listening to records and practicing the bass and trying to prepare for the gigs at night. And the the one thing I could do at that time was probably walk pretty well and play through changes and play through tunes. So I, I guess they were satisfied enough with my playing that they didn't throw me off the bandstand. But I, yeah, I think um, I didn't really realize the the significance of all these players like Jay McShann. I knew he had you know given Charlie Parker his start, but I didn't. To me, it was just sort of a surreal situation having to play with him, and he was playing a lot of left-hand stride piano, and I was just trying to figure out how to fit in the best I could. It's funny to hear you talk about playing with Jamie Abersold, who's, you know, Jamie Abersold is so ubiquitous now for his series of instructional, uh, originally records, when I first heard them, and then, mm-hmm. you know, cassettes and CDs, and it's become he's become such a, a brand name that it's sometimes difficult to remember that he's actually a, a real guy with, with whom it was possible to play. Uh, what was it like? What was your experience like with him? Oh, Jamie's a great guy. He's, he's a good friend. He's still a good friend. And uh, whenever I have a chance, I still like to go back to Louisville and, and do his workshops in the summer. Um, when I came up around Louisville, he was working sometimes as a bass player. And as well as an alto player, but I think he found more work for a while as a bass player. I think in the early 70s, he had just had this idea that he should make some practice tapes for people to, for his students to practice along with. As you know, it turned into, you know, a huge industry, a huge, uh, uh, he's, he's become sort of an icon or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he's a, He's a very good alto player. He's a real straight-ahead guy, real down-to-earth sort of Indiana hometown boy. When I was going over to his house, he was always challenging us to learn more tunes, and he would loan me records and say, check this out, check this out. So I would go over and play a session and get my butt kicked, you know, you know, trying to keep up with him, playing rhythm changes real fast or playing Stablemates or Cherokee or whatever. And then afterwards, he'd give me a big pile of records, and I'd, I'd take them back and, and check them out for a week, and then I'd go back over to his place and play another session. So that was about the time when he was, I think he had, he had about five or six volumes of his play-along series out, so he was just getting his uh, empire going, so to say. Uh, yeah, but he even today, he's a real straight-ahead guy, and, and the I think the reason he was so he is so successful is because uh, he really loves the music and uh, for him, you know, he'll still go out and play gigs and bars as long as nobody's smoking there. He's a big anti-smoking campaigner, but for him, the most important thing is that uh, people play jazz and he loves great professional jazz players but he also likes the fact that yeah, amateurs try and learn to play jazz and that everybody kind of is aware of the art form. John, I know you're very committed uh, to education, and uh, I wonder what you see as the role of e- education and the academy in the future health of jazz. Well, in a way, uh, the schools have replaced the the street learning that I went through, so I see it as a good thing and a bad thing. I I teach at a, a, a conservatory here in, in Essen called the Folkwang Conservatory, Folkwang Hochschule, when I came up, basically you went out and tried to get gigs and you hung out with players that were contemporaries or players who were better than you were, and that's the way you learned how to play. 
and today I, I think a lot of that is missing that uh, younger players if they have some talent they might go to a conservatory or enter a college and then they expect to be told everything that they're supposed to know and then in four years they get out and then they want a job so in a way I think um, a, a lot of players are, are disappointed when they get out of the system and they, they you know complete four or six years of college and they get out and then they they still can't go into a club and really connect with an audience or, or hold their own on a bandstand with uh, some heavyweight players. It, it's hard to say what the future of jazz through the college or the educational system is going to be. I think college has done a lot to raise awareness of jazz, but in a way that it's just a substitute for the way things were 30 years ago where yeah, there were clubs and restaurants and little bars that the local people went to and, and just heard jazz. My guest is bassist John Goldsby. His uh, excellent new recording uh, on his own label is called Space for the Bass. And, uh, John, it's been uh, just an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for asking me. That's bassist John Goldsby from his album Space for the Bass. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed The Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works, 3.0 United States license. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.